According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. We are in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. All right, Hebrews chapter 4. Brand new chapter. And it has a therefore, all right? So hopefully you haven't forgotten anything that uh, we dealt with in chapter 3 because the conclusion at the end of chapter 3 feeds us immediately into the exhortation here in in chapter 4. Remember, as chapter 3 came to an end, we were looking at the wilderness generation and they were a bunch of knuckleheads. They were a bunch of, thank you, they were uh, rebels. They uh, failed to enter into rest. And uh, the exhortation comes to us in the book of Hebrews is uh, don't be like them, all right? Don't, uh, don't do what they did because our consequences are far more severe. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? And by the time we get to chapter 10, it's explicit. The author of Hebrews lays it out there and says, look, those guys were put to death. Our priesthood is far more serious than, uh, than the Old Testament, than Israel in the wilderness. So the uh, exhortation becomes powerful. So the uh, therefore, that starts chapter 4, says, therefore, let us fear. Let us fear. And we all need to fear. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father to manifest His faithfulness, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your truth, thankful for your grace, recognizing, Father, that if you weren't, if you weren't a God of grace, none of us could be here this morning. But we do thank you uh, for the provision you've made for us to be saved, for us to study the Word of God. You've provided a lampstand with the Word of God that goes forth, line upon line, precept upon precept. And I thank you, Father, for diligent Bible students, for brothers and sisters in Christ that come together in, uh, in true New Testament fashion, Father, loving one another, serving one another, edifying one another, and growing together um, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so, Father, I thank you that we have a congregation of not only believers, but disciples, those that study the Scriptures to see if these things are so. So work in us this morning, Father, to be noble-minded, to search the Scriptures, to see if these things are so. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have the imperative to fear. Therefore, let us fear. And the author includes himself in this. He is very fond of this construction, actually. It's, uh, it's cohortative. It's, he is uh, including himself in the imperative. So instead of barking orders at people in the second person plural, he is uh, barking orders at himself and everybody else with him in the first person plural. He says, let us, let us do this. Let us fear. If, while a promise remains of entering his rest, and this is true, a promise remains. There is a promise that remains until he swears in his wrath, you shall not enter my rest, (laughs) all right? So until he swears in his wrath that you're not entering, then a promise remains. While a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. 
And this is, uh, this is a terrifying verse. This is a sad verse because of the believers that feel like they've fallen short. All right? And we have not fallen short. We have an absolute statement of falling short in Romans 3. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's an absolute truth. And yet, thanks be to God, we don't worry about that anymore. We're past that. We're beyond the point where we fall short of the glory of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we are brought into union with Christ, that we are saved, we have eternal life. We no longer fall short of the glory of God because we receive the glory of God. We are justified and, and sanctified and glorified in Christ. And so the, the all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, I'm not worried about it. I don't give that a thought again as far as my application is concerned because I'm saved. This falling short, on the other hand, does concern us. It concerns me, should concern you, should concern all of us, uh, particularly the coming short of the rest that remains, the rest that is promised. You see, getting us out of Egypt is not the totality of the plan of God, but to take us to a place of rest. And so just being saved, happy to be saved, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm very delighted to not be going to hell when I die. But Beyond that, things that accompany salvation, the greater purposes for being a saved one. And uh, that includes entering into rest. And I should be in that rest today. You should be in that rest today. All of us, day after day, as long as it's called today, should be in that rest today. And that's uh, what we're dealing with here. We've been dealing with it in uh, the first three chapters. So let us fear We recognize, of course, that the fear of the Lord is, throughout Scripture, the fear of the Lord is a prime attitudinal prerequisite for our acceptable function before God. And this is is a universal truth, the fear of the Lord. This is true in the church age. It was true for Israel. It was true for the Gentiles before Israel. Uh, There's never been a time that it has not been true. That uh, without faith it's impossible to please God. This is true for the angels and their stewardship. Even before Adam was created, the fear of the Lord is a prerequisite. Always has been. Always will be. The fear of the Lord is a prime attitudinal prerequisite for our acceptable function before God. If you lose your fear of the Lord, I don't care how much doctrine you have. I don't care what you know. The facts and the information that you might think about remembering every few days or whatever. Uh, I guarantee if you've lost your fear of the Lord, you're going to go several days without even thinking about it, without even thinking about those verses you know or those facts, those doctrines that you've learned. It is an attitudinal prerequisite. And many of these I think we're familiar with. Of course, we had Proverbs not long ago in Proverbs 1-7. Before we get to that, we got Psalm 34. And, And this is probably familiar to you as well. Psalm 34 verses 8 through 11. And if I didn't include your favorite fear of the Lord passages, then I would encourage you at our next fellowship opportunity, um, talk to one another. Come talk to me. Tell me, oh, pastor, my favorite fear of the Lord passage, and you didn't use it. I'll be glad to hear from you. What, uh, what, what's your favorite fear of the Lord passage? Tell me your f- top five. Let's, uh, let's fellowship in these things. Psalm 34. And it's it's curious to me. This is a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who departed him away, who, uh, who drove him away, and he departed. Isn't this beautiful? 
You know, if you remember this story or not, David had to act like a madman. He, he drooled in his beard. He acted all gibberish. He acted all, you know, insane. And uh, King Abimelech uh, said, do I lack madmen that you have, act, you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? And it's, it's one of the funniest verses in the whole Bible. Needless to say, that you might, you know, rightly view this episode as a low point in David's life. He was not exactly thriving in uh, material success or secular uh, success. Uh, and yet spiritually, this was the best thing for his faith. And he feared the Lord and he walked by faith. And it was a, a great blessing. So um, here in Psalm 34, uh, and I realize the screen says 8 through 11, but um, I will bless the Lord at all times, even the rough times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, even if I don't feel like it. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. That while he's praising, he's got an audience. He has men that are following him. He has followers. There are younger believers that need to learn from his example. And he invites them. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. We should welcome one another to celebrate the things we're celebrating. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Who's they? The ones that he's inviting to sing with him. The, the, the young men he's responsible for, their faces will never be ashamed. They're encouraged because their leader is walking in doctrine and, and applying faith rest. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, and that tasting means you too are not just going to listen to what I'm telling you. You're getting involved. You're, you're applying. You're living your Christian walk. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear of the Lord, you his saints. This is not a recipe for how to get saved. This is a mandate for what you do once you are saved. Keep fearing the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. You know, other people might look at you and say, wow, you're scraping by. You've got, you've got want. You're lacking. You've, you're, uh, you're getting along with humble means, as Paul would say. Well, have you learned the secret? Fear the Lord and there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So if he's withheld it, guess what? It's not a good thing because everything bestowed, every good, every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. And uh, so if he's withheld it, it's not a good thing. You don't need it right now. He knows what he's doing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So is this something you think just kind of happens automatically? That, you know, you just get saved and then just naturally by osmosis or just somehow by virtue of having eternal life, you're just going to automatically fear the Lord? Not at all. It requires teaching, and he invites, come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It takes discipline. We study to show ourselves approved. Workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You have to learn Christ. You have to learn the, uh, the, the fear of the Lord. It's not going to come natural to you, in your, certainly not in your old nature. And it's not even designed to come natural in your new nature. It's designed to be taught, to be exemplified, to be learned. And so we have it there. How about Proverbs 1 7? 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you're wasting your time this morning in Bible class. What are you going to learn if you're not humble? That fear of the Lord is necessary. It's with humility you receive the word implanted that's able to save your souls. To, uh, to, to sit under the authority of the Word of God without the fear of the Lord? All right, that's why we open every class with silent prayer. It's vital. 2 Corinthians 7.1 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these promises... 2 Corinthians 7, one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in what? In the fear of God. If you lose your fear, why do you think you're going to succeed in the ministry? Why do you think you're going to fulfill your ministry? Why do you think you're going to be able to claim the promises? Okay? Cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. And then Philippians 2.12. Last hour we're in Philippians. We're actually in Philippians 2 at the moment. Haven't quite reached verse 12 yet, but it says to, uh, what does it say? Beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. How? In fear and trembling. In fear and trembling. And so to transition into chapter 4 with the fear of the Lord admonition is marvelous. That uh, exactly, that we learn from the example, we learn from Scripture, we've got the Old Testament to learn from, we've got the Exodus generation to learn from, we can see their, uh, their failure, they died in the wilderness, they never entered into rest. And so what then is our response? Do we laugh at them? Do we mock at them? Do we celebrate how awesome we are and what bunch of idiots they were? No, we fear. We fear God because if we don't fear God, we're worse than them. If we don't fear God, we are worse than them and we will die in our wilderness and never have the rest that He's designed us to have in the church age. See? And that's the uh, imperative on that. Understand that ever-present potential for unbelief It never goes away. The ever-present potential for unbelief is a factor in our ever-present time of need. It's a time of need for fear. And uh, we had the warning back in chapter 3 that uh, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Well, when can that pop up? When can that evil, unbelieving heart rear its ugly head? Uh, Today? Anytime? There is an ever-present vulnerability because we're, we're human. We're sinners. That's what we are. An ever-present potential for unbelief. Remember we talked about the unbelief of the believer. You are a believer. You are saved. You are born again. But there is a danger that you're going to not believe in uh, your testing, in your faith walk on a day-by-day basis when you're supposed to be walking by faith and not by sight and you decide to shut down the whole faith operation and uh, walk by sight in your carnality. The unbelief of the believer is a, is a problem. We talked about that too with a man in the Gospel of Mark who said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Okay, It's a marvelous uh, verse. I love it. And so we have this potential we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That's Hebrews 3.19. Why did they not enter rest? 
We talked about this last week. All of these rhetorical questions have the same answer. It's those guys, right? Who provoked him? With whom was he angry? Who did he swear that they would uh, not enter his rest? Those guys. The Exodus generation. A redeemed people that walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Okay? Keep that in mind. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and then grumbled in the wilderness. They did not walk by faith. They did not unite the Word of God with faith. And so who will he be angry with in our day and age? Us. Okay? Not those guys. Us. We are a redeemed people saved by the power of God. We are delivered from the bondage of the slave market of sin. We are the ones that are designed to enter into a mental attitude of rest. That we should be in that inner peace, that mental attitude of rest that the Father has designed us for. There remains a rest for the people of God. And when we don't apply faith to the Word of God, then we die in our wilderness just like they did. That's... uh, a giveaway to the end of chapter 4 and 5 here. But all right, Um, let's take it uh, again point by point. It's an ever-present potential, so we have an ever-present time of need, an ever-present time of need for fear because the potential to fall is there. I have a need of fear all day, every day. And so let us fear in verse 1. We get to the end of the chapter. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And when is that? All day, every day. Day after day, as long as it's called today. Don't ever fall into a trap of thinking that the time of need is, is um, every so often. The time of need is only in the great big things in life, that I'll handle the little things myself. But if there's something that's beyond what I can deal with, well then, you know, in those times of need, then I'll think about maybe praying. Okay? No. Pray without ceasing. Pray all day, every day. Pray all the time. Consistently pray. If you wait for a crisis moment to decide, hey, I'm going to try to create a prayer life, uh, too late. You should have had a prayer life already engaged so that when those crises come along, you take them in stride and they're really not as big a deal as they are in other circumstances. When all of a sudden you have to remember, oh, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do now? How does faith rest work? See, when you try to remember faith rest every so often because you don't use it all the time, that's not the way it's designed to do. So the time of need is now. All day, every day, now. Again, just put it in the metaphor. The metaphor is the, the wilderness wanderings. When they left Egypt, where were they? In the wilderness. And so for 40 years they were in the wilderness watching God's faithfulness. They never reached the rest. I don't want that to be the case for uh, any of us. I love Psalm 46, just the title for Psalm 46, just the heading, verse 1 of Psalm 46, because God is so good. You guys can tap your glass faster than I can flip the pages. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at uh, its swelling pride, 
Are we going to fear? Why fear? God is faithful. Day after day, as long as it's called today, it's the same God is faithful. The whole universe may explode, and it will someday. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But even then, hey, God is our refuge. So with the right fear of God, we don't have any other, we don't have the carnal fear. If you have the reverent fear, you don't worry about the terror, the carnal fear. You're not scared of people, places, things, and circumstances, right? Because you have the fear of the Lord. Anyway, he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And that's, uh, that's a, I like that, tur- that, that term. Understand that without a sanctified fear, we have a certain fear. <laughs> it's called a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Without a sanctified fear. And, and I don't, it doesn't matter. The Hebrew in the Old Testament uses the same word, yare. Same word for fear of the Lord. It's a reverence. It's a, it's a healthy respect. It is, uh, uh, and, and it's the same word as opposed to a carnal fear where you're scared of something, where you're afraid of something. Same word. Same thing in Greek. It's phobos, okay? Where we get phobia. We have phobos, phobetomai. We got the phobeto terms in, in Greek. And the New Testament uses the same term for Godly fear, reverence before the Lord, and uh, being scared, carnal fear, where one is the essence of faith, the other is the absence of faith. The only difference between the, the two kinds of fear is whether you've got faith in it or not. Does that make sense? All right, you've had this before, you know this. And so we have this. It says, let us fear. And then we have a warning. When we get to Hebrews 10, I told you the accountability is far more severe and uh, there is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And um, the whole paragraph, say from 26 to 31 in Hebrews 10, I think addresses this powerfully. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. A defiant rebellion against the Word of God as a believer. What are you going to do? There's no sacrifice for that. What are you going to do? But a terrifying expectation of judgment. And so there it is. There's my expression. A terrifying expectation of judgment. The fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. All right. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You read your Old Testament lately? Pretty brutal, wasn't it? consequences for rebellion not a lot of mercy in that you know you're guilty you're stoned goodbye that's the the consequences and and so now we come to the new testament and don't fall for the myth that there were different gods in the old testament that that was a mean god of wrath and jesus is the turn the other cheek happy god of love same god okay i don't know if you deal with the skeptics i deal with but they are ridiculous Anyway, it's the same God, same righteousness, same justice, same standard, same wrath. And our accountability is much more severe because they were given shadows, we're given substance. And so um, anyone that's set aside, counted as nothing, empty, you know, emptied themselves, they've laid, they've laid aside the law of Moses, they, um, different verb, but anyway, just set it at naught. They get death. 
That's their consequence. How much severer punishment? We deserve something worse than death. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For a church-age believer priest to defy the will of God, it's worse. It's far worse. In fact, to be dragged out and stoned by our fellow church members would be easier than the chastisement that God applies to us in the church age. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Terrifying. Okay? So, fear God and don't be terrified. How about that? The fear of the Lord. So we're not terrified by the Lord's hand of judgment. If we lose that sanctified fear, if we lose that reverence, then there's a certain fear on the way. It's called the judgment function of the justice of God. It's called the chastisement of a loving Father who loves us too much. How much does He love us? (laughs) Remember, He loved the world in such a way that He gave His only begotten Son. He loves us in such a way that He disciplines us for our good, for our edification, for our correction. And that's uh, that's chapter 12, so we'll get there. All right, what else do we have here in in, um, chapter 4? Well, we've got a promise that remains. Let us fear if, while a promise remains... Now, how good is a promise? Do you like promises? Well, I guess it depends on the promise. And it also depends on, uh, I mean, does it not depend upon the promise of the, the integrity and faithfulness of the one making the promise? Okay. If, if, if the person making a promise is a total liar and hasn't made good on a promise in 20 years, are you, are you, uh, you, know, are you all excited about this next one that comes along? Okay, <laughs> or do you have reason to believe uh, that a, that this person is not faithful, and you've got a huge grain of salt dose of skepticism, and you're not trusting that promise, uh, you know, as far as you could throw it? So, how good is a promise? And then let's assume the promise comes from God, who cannot lie. Okay, that's a pretty good promise. I like that. But then we start to get pick, uh, picky and choosy too about certain promises we like and certain promises we don't like. We like the promise about, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a great promise. But what about, in the world you will have tribulation? That's also a promise. Then he goes on to say, but be of good courage, I have overcome the world. And yet, in the world you will have tribulation. I never see that on the the Lifeway Christian store knick-knack shelf when they're selling you the little doodads to put on your refrigerator and whatever. The world will hate you because they hated me first. That's a promise of God. So do you like that promise? I do. I like all the promises. Because my eternal life is grounded in a promise. And the God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. See, And so this promise, understand, entering God's promise, God's rest, is a promise. And it's a promise from God to mankind. A promise remains. And that promise, interestingly enough, preceded the wilderness wanderings, it preceded the exodus, it preceded the Jewish people. It's a promise actually that goes all the way back to Adam. It's a promise that's contained, it's even prior to Adam's fall. 
It's a promise that is linked to the Sabbath rest of day seven. Day seven, when God himself rested. He rested. Why? Was he tired? He rested and he sanctified and he blessed. And what we learn is that sanctified and blessed came with a promise. And the promise is for humanity. The promise is for our rest. The six days of recreation was six days of preparation of planet Earth for humanity. After the angelic fall, after the angelic stewardship, in six days, humanity was uh, prepared. The world was prepared for humanity. And Adam was fashioned on day six. And then God rested on day seven. So really, on Adam's day one, on Adam's day one, he uh, received this promise. On Adam's day one, he received this principle. Because it was God's day seven, but it was Adam's day one, right? Uh, depends, day two, however you want to count it. He was created on day six. He had an evening, he had a morning, and there you go. And Adam learned rest right from the beginning. And so let's uh, hold your finger here and let's look at Genesis 2. I like Genesis, I'm thinking about Genesis. Pastor Cliff is teaching Genesis and I'm picking his brain and um, I'm thinking uh, we may do Genesis. It's on the uh, shorter list instead of the longer list these days. Genesis 2. And so um, we have six days in chapter 1 and uh, we have man in in, uh, chapter 1. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. We have a little bit more detail when we get into chapter 2, specifically about how Adam came first and then the naming of the animals and then the creation of the woman. But anyway, we get through six days in chapter 1. We get into chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And we're going to talk about, Hebrews talks about his works were finished from the foundation of the world. All right? It was done. It is finished. He's going to rest for a day. He's going to go back to work on day eight, but it's not the same as the work he did on the first six days. It's not more creation, right? Those, that work is done from the foundation of the world. Now he's going to do something in that creation after he takes his day of rest. So by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. These are the two verbs we have in the Hebrew text, blessing and sanctification. When we learn in Hebrews, though, it comes with a promise. A promise remains that he's not the only one resting. Adam is with him here on this day. I think that's significant. And so uh, he blessed it, he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. You ever take a new job and your first day on the job and they say, oh, sorry, it's a holiday. You got the day off, come back tomorrow. Okay? I didn't realize when I joined the Army on November 12th that it was uh, Veterans Day. And uh, my delayed entry... Uh, was delayed and uh, I had to go in on the 12th instead of the 11th because November 11th is Veterans Day. 
And so uh, that's kind of what happened. And so I went in on November 12th and took my oath of service and got inducted. And, and then so it turned out my uh, service, my four-year enlistment was completed on November 11th, four years later. And that's just, I had no clue that that's what I was doing when, because I enlisted in March, but delayed entry. They had a school date for MP school that was not going to start until, uh, until November. And um, which, you know, how cool is that, right? I signed the papers in March and they said, all right, you can leave this Thursday or you can leave in November. <laughs> okay, I'll leave in November. <laughs> this Thursday's kind of quick. Uh, so that, that was kind of what happened. And so you get to your new job and it's a holiday. And now, you know, four years later, I'm released and now the whole country has a holiday to celebrate my four-year enlistment. It's, <laughs> it's a marvelous testimony. I think the whole country is thankful that I'm not, that I left the service and <laughs> our freedom is not dependent upon. Anyway, so here's Adam and he's created and day one, or if you want to think of it as day two, whatever. So he, uh, there's evening and morning and, he, and on day six, he's created. And then there's an evening and a morning and he wakes up and is he you might imagine he's he's eager. He wants to start naming animals or something, right? He wants to, you know, look around and spot where those rivers are and kind of chart out the, the boundaries of his new land. And I don't know what he wants to do on day one. Yeah, what would you want to do on day one? Okay? Because he's not a baby. He's born an adult male. And you might imagine he's, he's you know, maybe start looking around for where that, that naked woman might be. I don't know. What, what does he want to do? What does he want to do on day one? Name the animals. What does he want to do? And God says, all right, this is a day now that I have sanctified, I have blessed, I have promised. There is a promise on this day. And it's, uh, it's interesting. All right. So that's Genesis 2. And it's curious because we go through here in Hebrews 4, and look at this. It was a promise in Adam's day. Moses' day, Joshua's day, David's day, and our day. There is a spectrum here in chapter 4. And that spectrum goes by so fast, I think folks miss the point. And, and they're all wrapped up in land flowing with milk and honey. They're all wrapped up over physical humans crossing a physical river, killing a bunch of other physical humans, and living in a physical land. And all the, all the things with Moses and Joshua, with the conquest, failing to recognize, okay, Moses didn't take him into the land, Joshua did take him into the land, but Joshua didn't give him the rest that God had promised. And David speaks about it 400 years later. How much time between Moses and David? How much time between Joshua and David? So, why is David talking about the offer of rest in Psalm 95. Okay? We read about it in Hebrews 4, but Hebrews 4 is quoting Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is talking about Joshua, Moses and Joshua. So Hebrews is talking about Psalm 95, David, but David is talking about Moses and Joshua, but David is also talking about even Adam and Eve. So look, just look at these verses here. Hebrews 4, verse 3 and verse 4. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, 
they shall not enter my rest, although God's works, His works, were finished from the foundation of the world. So it's bigger than Joshua. It's bigger than David. It's bigger than us today. It goes back to the design of God for this rest from the foundation of the world. What is it he rested on on the seventh day? And when he went back to work on the eighth day, was he redoing what had been done before? Not at all. Working with Adam and Eve, moving forward in the plan of God. And so we, this, this becomes vital for us. When we rest, when you and I rest, that is a marvelous provision from God. We rest in our attitude. We rest in reflection. We rest in worship. We rest in appreciation and glory. And then we advance. We don't look back. We don't try to undo or redo or, or go back over something already. We relax in the faith rest life and we move forward. We forget what lies behind and we reach forward to what lies ahead. Otherwise, <laughs> we, we actually insult the rest if we stop resting and go back to try to improve upon something that we had previously rested in. Okay? We're forward-looking. Faith rest is forward-looking. The only thing we look back for is to thank God for being a God of grace. We give Him the grace. We give Him the glory. We worship what He's done. We see that it's very good. We give credit for what is very good. And then we move on. And if there's a day that we can't make a very good statement, well, then we move on anyway. We move on to day two. Day one doesn't, or day two does not have a very good statement. Yeah, I don't have time, but go back and check that out. All right. He, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Okay? Genesis 2, you know that. The author of Hebrews here was momentarily distracted. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Look what's happening here. This link is happening here. This link is taking day seven from Genesis and applying it to what Israel should have been applying entering into the land flowing with milk and honey. Okay? And they failed. They failed because they did not believe. They did not apply faith to what they'd been told. I want to talk about that. So there is... um, his God rested on the seventh day, Genesis 2.2. 2. So we have a promise in Adam's day, a promise in Moses' day, a promise in Joshua's day. Of course, Moses didn't get to enter the rest either. So verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. The actual vow comes in Numbers 14. The vow comes uh, for in the, in the aftermath of the faithless spies and the national rebellion. And then it's applied to Moses after he strikes the rock and and uh, rebels against God. And so it's a vow. Uh, and yet it remained a promise in Moses' day. It remained a promise in Joshua's day. But notice verse, verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So Joshua didn't give them rest. Joshua took them into the land. Joshua uh, won the battle at Jericho, lost Ai, won Ai the second time had all the other conquests, south and then north. They, they divided the, the inheritance. Didn't quite 
drive out all the inhabitants. They, they blew it in some cases. They kept some Canaanites among them. But when you read the end of Joshua, there is a statement of rest that is made, kind of, sort of, in a way. But nevertheless, what does this verse say? Joshua didn't do it. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. We wouldn't have Psalm 95 in our Bible. We wouldn't have David saying, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you would hear his voice, let us be diligent to enter that rest. That there was a mental attitude rest that they failed to enter into. And yeah, they settled into the land and they started, you know, planting their crops and raising their animals and doing what they were doing. They got busy with temporal life, but they never entered into rest as they were designed to do. Is that descriptive of us? Do believers today get all busy in temporal life, marrying and giving in marriage and all these other things, and we don't enter into the the rest that we're supposed to enter into day after day as long as it's called today. And so there's David's day. So verse 7 says he again fixes a certain day and that day is today. Saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so here's David and I believe David understood this rest totally. That's why he wrote Psalm 23. That's why David had that, that piece, the psalm that we read earlier, uh, that, that he's a very present help in time of trouble. You know, David understood that rest and he used that rest in all of his, all of his circumstances, see, or most, many of his circumstances. And he's uh, exhorting his nation to, to uh, faith rest it. Don't harden your heart. Listen to the Word of God. Walk by faith. Okay? You can have that mental attitude piece, that, uh, that rest right now, today. You never have to let go of it. And then our day. Our day is when it gets totally stressed throughout this chapter. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, um, verse 6, 9, 10, 11. All throughout this verse, it's day after day, today. Verse 2, we've had good news preached to us. What are we going to do? We're going to ignore it. We're going to apply faith. We've had good news preached to us. And uh, verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. We enter that rest. If you're not entering that rest, especially after getting this doctrine, if you're not entering that rest, shame on you. Shame on me. Listen to what God promises, united by faith, and rest. Simple as that. We get to do that. We can do that today. We should do that today and every day. Uh, Verse 6 has a today. Since it remains for some to enter it and some not to enter it. How many enter it? How many don't enter it? Well, stop to think. How many believers do you know aren't even true disciples to begin with? They're saved. They're going to go to heaven when they die. But are they living in the Word of God? Are they abiding in the Word? Then they're not disciples. If they're not disciples, how are they entering into rest? I don't think they can. So it remains for some to enter it. Do so. Do so today. Because he again fixes a certain day. It's called today. Verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Use it. Enter into it. Live your Christian walk in that rest. Verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And God rested from His from the foundation of the world. 
Let's rest from us. Let's rest from ours. Right here, right now, and forevermore. All right. Because if we don't, we have to answer for it. If we don't, the same Word of God that we're ignoring, it's going to cut deep. Because it's the critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And it's going to pierce. It's going to cut. That's the standard. And when we don't rest in it, it it rests in us, (laughs) right? It plunges deep. And that's when we get into verses 12 and following, how the Word of God is alive and powerful. God's promise of rest in Moses and Joshua's day was a spiritual promise linked to a physical promise of physical land. And this keeps us from just being totally absorbed in the physical. If all you can think about is the physical, then uh, you probably have a Christian, Christian way of life that is uh, completely absorbed in geopolitics and uh, not so much concerned with uh, the, the spiritual things of, of the church age or the dispensational plan or uh, things of that nature. Um, anyway, it is a spiritual promise linked to a physical promise of physical land. Because yes, they are the covenant people. They are the earthly people. They're going to live in the midst of Gentile nations. And they're going to have neighbors. And they're supposed to be the positive illustration. They're supposed to be the example, the witness and the testimony to all those Gentiles. The ones immediately around them and then Gentile nations around the world should look at the Jewish nation and see the covenant people of God. And they would see a physical people in a physical land with physical promises, but also spiritual promises. Spiritual promises. So what do we see in Deuteronomy 12? Deuteronomy 12. And it's curious to me how Moses now, uh, once the Exodus generation is uh, under the, the, the vow, God swore in his wrath they wouldn't enter his rest, Now Moses turns to the wilderness generation, the children. Everybody that was under 20 or not even born yet at the Exodus. And he talks to that generation. It's like turning from the baby boomers to the Gen X generation or whatever. Turning from the Gen X to the millennials. Turning from the millennials to the uh, whatever. Won't be anybody after the millennials. Millennials are going to ruin everything and we're just gone. I tease, I tease. This is a grace ministry after all. No, the millennials are going to go places we wouldn't even dream of. And uh, the, the pastors of the next generation are going to take the generation after that and things that we couldn't even imagine. Deuteronomy 12, verses 8 through 12. And uh, you shall not do at all what we're doing here today. <laughs> okay, um, And that's kind of a nice promise. You know, um, because they were still there. They hadn't quite, they hadn't died off yet. And it's like, you know, the book of Hebrews says, don't be like those guys. Well, it's the same message, but those guys are still standing there listening to Moses telling their kids, don't be like them. (laughs) You shall not do at all what we're doing here today. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Oh, that's a train wreck. For you have not yet as come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Do you think those are two and the same thing? Or do you think they're different things? 
Do you think that there's a spiritual component to spiritual rest as well as an inheritance that is, does consist of physical land, land, seed, and blessing in the spiritual dimension and the physical dimension? You have not yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, say, when you do this, because God's giving it to you, and He gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in it securely. So what's the purpose in that? What's the benefit to having peace? What's the value in rest. What do you do with the rest? Take your feet up and watch a ball game? What do you do with rest? Well, it's designed for worship. It shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for His name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand. This sounds like a lot of work. I thought I was resting. (laughs) Sabbath worship See, it's not a cessation of do nothing. It's put temporal life to the side and focus on your spiritual rest. Focus on your worship. Give God the glory for all that He has done. So bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, all your choice votive offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. This is where true joy comes in. Rejoicing before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levite who is within your gates, see, they get the day off too. They're they're worshiping with you on this Sabbath day. The Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. So there is a spiritual promise linked, tied in tandem with this physical promise of physical land. What else do we see here? The Exodus generation failed to enter God's rest corporately, nationally. Only two out of the whole generation, right? Caleb and Joshua, the only two. Not even Moses. Just two people from that whole Exodus generation. They failed to enter God's rest corporately, that is nationally, but the promise that remains for the heavenly people of God must be entered into individually. This too, I think, gets confused. That's why when we rightly divide the word of truth, we, we pay attention to the terms and we, we, uh, we observe the scope. Is this a corporate passage or an individual passage? And folks that confuse those things, they just muddle stuff up and make it complicated and tragically, I think, then they get into some other heretical things. When it says, uh, so they failed... But then when it talks about us, it says any one of you. That's individual. Any one of you, right? Maybe you, maybe you, maybe you. I don't want to look at anybody when I say that. But, you know, any one of you means an individual. Now, I could be talking about the collective you, y'all, right? I learned that when I got to Texas, okay? Not true. They, they, they had y'all in Alabama also. But um, the y'all... I could talk about y'all and what y'all are going to do when you leave here, when y'all leave here, okay? Y'all, all y'all. But then there might be any one of you 
now I'm singling somebody out. Now I'm establishing a criteria where I say if there's any one of you, any one of you here this morning that does not have eternal life, does not ever place your faith in Christ, you know, don't walk out of here with all the rest. Stay. Come talk to me. This is a day that you need to receive eternal life. And you can do that right here, right now, before you leave. So if there's any one of you that does not, that does not yet have eternal life, then don't go. So you see the difference? Where we're shifting from talking about a corporate group, and then we, we also discuss the individual. Okay, All of Israel corporately left Egypt. All of them. My drill sergeant would say, lottie dotty, everybody. They exited Egypt. All of them. I don't think for a minute that every single one of them was a born-again believer. I believe they were unbelievers. Unbelieving Jewish people that were pretty happy about not being Egyptian slaves anymore. Packed their stuff and walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Never once received eternal life. How sad is that? So they had a corporate election. They had a corporate redemption. These are, these are the doctrines I'm talking about that I think have to be handled corporately. They have to be handled individually. And you have to recognize which passages do one or the other, which passages do both. And uh, sloppiness on that regard, I think, uh, leads to trouble far as that goes. Anyway, that's for a later message. The promise that remains for the heavenly people of God must be entered into individually. And so when we look at verse 6, there, therefore since it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So there's those guys and now there's us. And it does use the term in verse 9, people of God. And that is a legitimate term and it's there Israel was the people of God. The church is the people of God. But stop and ask yourself, does that mean we're all the same? Does that mean because we are the people of God in the New Testament and Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament, on that basis, can we then say that the church is Israel or Israel was the church or that it's all lumped into the same, that there's just one general people of God? No, absolutely not. Not at all. You know, I'm a male, Robert's a male, but I'm not Robert. Okay, I mean, it's just logic. You've got to follow through here on this, okay? And so that's a fallacy. If you're going to try to cross that bridge, you can't cross that bridge. And it's easy enough to demonstrate that Israel was an earthly people. We are a heavenly people. It's easy enough to illustrate Israel had a priesthood. We are a priesthood. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy, I think, uh, Lewis Bray Schaefer had, you know, 40 different reasons why the church is not Israel. Anyway. Um, but using the phrase people of God, I don't have any problem with that. The text uses it there in verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Great, I got it. Because the Gentile people of God had a Sabbath rest, the Jewish people of God had a Sabbath rest, and the church people of God has a Sabbath rest. And guess what? In the millennium and fullness of time, there will be even more Sabbath rest provided for the generations yet to come. Simply calling people people of God is not like calling them saints. There were Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, millennial saints, tribulational saints, fullness of time saints. Saints is a, is a general term that spans all dispensations. So uh, 
Anyway, don't, uh, don't sweat that. Now, falling short, falling short. I think the biggest danger, well, a couple of things here. With, with, there's, there's the literally fa- coming short, but then there's the seeming to have coming short. And I think that's a, a warning for a reason. Notice, it may seem to us that we fall short of God's rest. It may seem to us that we fall short. And if we're honest, we do. (laughs) But there are occasions where we don't, but it seems to us like we do. There are occasions whereby we feel like our Christian walk is not what it should be. And we feel like um, we've, we've, we've blown it. That we're the biggest failures in the history of the church age that we've fallen short of entering into His rest. And it seems like that. But is it still today? Does there remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God? Have we provoked Him to wrath to the point that He has arrived on this earth in a theophany and uttered a vow before Moses or some living prophet And has there ever been a point in the church age where he swears in his wrath, you loser, you certainly shall not enter into my rest. I think it was a very momentous day at Kadesh Barnea. I think it was a very momentous day when the God who could not lie takes a vow and swears by his own name, as I live, saith the Lord, they shall not enter my rest. He said, no one who is 20 years of age or older shall enter my rest. And he uttered a vow in the presence of Moses, in the presence of that generation, in the presence of their children, and made good on that vow. That generation died in the wilderness. Their children were the ones that crossed into the promised land. And so what we have to ask ourselves then as we talk about the church age, and we talk about our warning, because he does give a warning, he says... Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your heart. But is there ever a time in the church age where God gives us over? Where God swears in His wrath that that church age believer is permanently banned from ever entering into the rest that we have in Christ? All right. I'm going to leave that in a suspended judgment. I'm not going to answer yes. I'm not going to answer no. I tried to keep a poker face the whole time. Some of you were nodding. Some of you were shaking. So we'll see if, if, uh, you know, we just started chapter four. There's a lot more to get into. Does God ever say in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest? in the church age, for you and I today in our Melchizedek priesthood in the church age. All right. So, um, indeed, we, uh, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So, they got doctrine. They got a gospel. They got good news preached. That's what evangelism is. 
It's good news preached. Wow, good news. There's rest. We have good news preached. There's rest. They were told about rest. We were told about rest. Uh, The word they received was defective somehow. No. There was nothing wrong with their good news. There was nothing deficient about their gospel. There was not a thing to fit. The Word of God is alive and powerful. It is powerful unto salvation. There is nothing deficient about the Word of God. But what happens is you don't respond by faith to form the, uh, the unity there. It says, it did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Nothing wrong with the Word. The problem was them. They didn't receive it in faith. That's what the unification is, united by faith. It's delivered over, it should be received. If it's not received, it's not the fault of the one that's giving it over. All right. So we'll deal with this because the Word of God is profitable. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So how can it be profitable but not profit? Well, the person doesn't apply faith. And so, and two people can be hearing the same gospel, sitting side by side in the same pew. One prophets, the other doesn't profit. It's the same word that went forth. But one sitting there in faith, absorbing it all, receiving it implanted, and the other is sitting there in carnality. Wondering, you know, is this guy done yet? Can I go eat lunch now? Or whatever, okay? So uh, we'll talk about that because that's, uh, yeah, I'm going to save that for next week. All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Thank you for the blessings that we have to learn from the example of those that have gone before. And Father, these things that were written in earlier times are written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Here we are, Father. We are the age of substance. We are the reality in Christ. The Old Testament was shadows and looking forward to be fulfilled in Christ. And here we are in Christ. So Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would know the length and width and height and depth, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasseth understanding, that we would be filled to the fullness. Father, make these things very clear to us. Show us the rest that remains for the people of God and lead us into that rest. Thank you, Father, for being so faithful. Thank you for your Son and all that He accomplished. Might we we rest from our works even as you rested from your works, and might we do so forevermore. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, we have a new hymn of the month, so we're going to dismiss with our closing hymn. You'll find it in in your blue hymnal. Two twenty one. Two twenty one. Calvary covers.